And now I'm very pleased to introduce the moderator for panel two, Ms. Kelly Kennedy. Kelly Kennedy is a health policy reporter at USA Today. She served in the U.S. Army from 1987 to 1993, including tours in the Middle East during Desert Storm and in Mogadishu, Somalia. She spent five years covering military health at Military Times and is the author of They Fought for Each Other, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Hardest Hit Unit in Iraq. Please welcome Ms. Kelly Kennedy. When they invited me to, to moderate this panel, I was really excited. I, I, sir, or I um, embedded with units in Iraq and Afghanistan. My last trip to Afghanistan was with the medevac crews, so I saw the injuries after they happened. Some of these injuries are so horrific and so different from what you see stateside. It's not just that they're, they're blast injuries and, and they're young people. It's, it's that the, the injuries themselves look different. It's, there's no clear-cut ed edges. There's, it looks like jelly. It doesn't, there's nothing to sew. There's nothing to, to start with, it, it seems like, from a journalist looking at these wounds. At the same time, when there's a blast, there's usually shrapnel hitting every portion of the body, or there'll be a wound to the face. One of the things that's most compelling, I think, to me about medicine, about military medicine, is these guys are coming back, they, and men and women are coming back, and they are young, and they are ready to go on with their lives, and they're saying, you know, I think I want to do a triathlon when they've lost a foot or two foot or an arm. They're, they're ready to go and they're willing to work hard for it. Beyond the injuries that are so um, obvious, you've got injuries that aren't so visible. And I know that you've talked about some of those this morning, traumatic brain injuries or post-traumatic stress. And I think it's really interesting to see what the um, doctors in this field are, are doing about that and how that can be uh, trans transmitted to the civilian population. So we've got three doctors I'd like to welcome after listening to them backstage or whatever they call that back there. I'm really excited to hear what they have to say. Um, first, we have Dr. Dean Norman, and he is the Chief of Staff for the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. He's responsible for managing all of GLA's clinical, educational, and research operations. He received his undergra undergraduate and medical degree from UCLA and has been on the medical staff at the West Los Angeles VA Medical Center and a member of the UCLA faculty since 1983. He was the first U.S. recipient of the Fellows of the Hiroshima um, International Council for Medical Care of the Radiation Exposed and was an awarded a scholarship by the Japanese American Medical Association for this fellowship. And next we have Dr. Cody Azari, an internationally known plastic surgeon and, hard, and hand surgeon. Azari is a co-director of Operation MEND, UCLA's groundbreaking program that provides returning military personnel with severe facial and other medical injuries access to the nation's top plastic and reconstructive surgeons. Azari is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery and plastic surgery at the David Geffen <laughs> School of Medicine at UCLA and is the Chief of Reconstructive Transplantation Program, which is fascinating. <laughs> and Dr. David Havda is the Director of the UCLA Brain Injury Research Center. Havda received the U.S. Army's 2011 Strength of the Nation Award for his research that led to a system for the diagnosis and recovery of traumatic brain injury on the battlefield. His research was also instrumental in changing the way the National Football League diagnoses and treats players who have suffered concussions. Hobda's efforts to understand and treat TBI have now become mem 
become part of Operation MEND, a partnership between UCLA Health the, the UCLA health system and the military to help treat U.S. personnel severely wounded during service in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> I guess I'd like to start with a, a pretty general question, just wide open. Um, what's the biggest thing that you've seen change since the beginnings of these wars and now medically? What's, what's the thing that most compels you in your work? For me, and I started in, actually I was a medical student at, uh, in the West LAVA, believe it or not, back in 1972. That was the Vietnam era. And I would say the, the, the biggest change for VA has been our, now our focus more towards a patient-centered environment where we take the patient rather as a patient as sort of a partner in their health care and our emphasis now has been on providing the best possible system we can for uh, female veterans. That wasn't in place in the Vietnam era, I could tell you that. And now is state of the art. And we have UCLA appointed faculty people. We have pretty much an all-female clinic in all the different clinics. We have uh, very high standards. They get inspected very frequently. And I think that's a big change for us. The second big change for us is the, and this is something I'll, I feel very proud about, is the destigmatization of, of mental health, this is what I call it. In other words, we're, what we're trying to do, and we've done it to a large extent at our Sepulveda campus, and we're going to have it done at West LA the next year, is to embed, that's the word, or integrate our mental health folks with our primary care folks. So when a veteran goes into the clinic, they're going to the clinic, they're not going to a mental health clinic. And some of these soldiers feel very worried because during their military experience, it was a hit if you were seeing a mental health provider and they don't get the mental health services that they need. Now they can come into a clinic, they get the mental health services they need. It's one-stop shopping and, and that's very good. The, finally, the third big change has been in, in the last 15, 20 years is our focus on dealing with the very disadvantageous situations of homeless veterans. When I started as chief of staff, I had a department, I, I was fight, we were always fighting over who should social work report to. I didn't want to reporting to me, I didn't know much about it, but it, I learned a lot about it. I had 80 social workers, I have 400 social workers now. I had just a f few dozen emergency housing beds on our campus. On the West LA campus I have 700 emergency housing and traditional housing beds. In the community I have 5,000 grant per diem beds, beds for transitional housing, and now we're actually building a more permanent housing on the West LA campus. Our focus on the social mission for VA is unprecedented, and our goal is by 2015 to have no homeless veterans. And since I've been chief of staff, I won't take credit for it, it's been a lot of other people. We've gone from 25,000 estimated homeless veterans in Los Angeles, and I think we're down to about 6,000 now. One is too many but we're down to 6,000 from 25,000. And the programs we have are amazing. Europe? So um, one of the interesting things that I've seen is the face of injuries have changed during these wars. And, and, I'll, and I'll explain it to you. Um, the types of traumas that are coming back would never have survived in the previous wars. So we're having service members come in with missing limbs, both lower extremities, both upper extremities. So in the history of war, if you think about it, prior to these conflicts, if you will, 
there was not one person that survived with a four limb amputation. Not one. Yet we're having these guys come back with four limbs that are amputated. So imagine what that means. That poses multiple areas of challenges. Kudos goes out to the military medicine and that they're able to save people's lives. So it's, the face of war has changed because the, the conflicts, the, the, the implements of the enemy have changed. And we've also learned how to change in taking care of those. For example, the medevacs take out the service member that's been injured very rapidly. They come in, they get this very initial operation rather quickly, um, rather crudely. Uh, it doesn't need to be extensive. Um, it's a debridement, their stabilization. Then several days later, they come back. And by doing that, they found that they can get the patients to survive. So we've learned a lot from these. And you actually just saw how military medicine changed civilian medicine two weeks ago with uh, Boston, uh, with the Boston Marathons. The exact same lessons that were learned through these conflicts <coughs> were applied to the Boston medical centers and civilian traumas, trauma units that saved them. So that's one. Number two is the types of injuries have changed, not just with the amputations. We are getting severe infections. These IED blasts, you know, you saw the IEDs in Boston, they were filled with shrapnel. The ones that are in Afga Afghanistan and Iraq are filled with body parts, animal parts, feces, um, virtually anything that's um, not sanitary. And these cause horrific infections. So infectious disease specialists have had to pick up the pace to be able to take care of them. And finally, because the patients are surviving, the wounds are rather significant, not the, not the physical wounds, but also the emotional wounds. So it's a multifactorial way that medicine has changed because of these, um, because of these types of injuries. Yeah, I would have to say uh, in, in 2007 into 2009, I was very surprised at um, the lack of understanding of what mild traumatic brain injury was. And people would begin to think about it was a psychological problem rather than a physical problem to the brain. And by being able to image, uh, use, using brain imaging in a new way, we were able to give a picture of the human brain and what it looks like when it's received a concussion and what happens after multiple concussions. And through, through several different types of, uh, of meetings, we res uh, resulted in, in a DTM, which is an order from the Pentagon, to protect individuals that have had a concussion overseas or in theater or even in training so that they would be removed the same way we would do an athlete from a football field until they were uh, declared uh, uh, recovered from their concussion because the brain was vulnerable. And out of that work, now that effort, with the help of many, many people, including uh, Mr. Fisher, many people in the military, we were able to put together um, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, which is part of what is, uh, used to be Bethesda. And it's a center that is focused primarily on mild traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder, and a network on how to treat individuals that come back from theater for that. We, as I described before, we, we launched the DTM to protect individuals that have had a concussion. And we finished a mission to Afghanistan to put in uh, imaging uh, in theater, so magnetic resonance imaging scanners in theater, as well as biomarker laboratories in theater, as well as forward operating bases, which have the technology and the, the ability to actually protect individuals with mild traumatic brain injury.
what I'm what I'm beginning to see now that's going to change the transfer to uh, civilian medicine is the concerns of what the long-term consequences are for people that have received repeated injuries to the brain and how why is that so um, why is there such a high comorbidity between mild traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder? And what is, the, what is the eventual cost to our country when it comes to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or long-term dementia, Parkinson's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Alzheimer's disease for individuals that have received this? So this is the real chance, these are the accomplishments that, that we've made, but th this is the Pandora's box that we've kind of opened and we're aggressively uh, going after them. I'm wondering if each of you could talk about a specific example. You were talking about a hand transplant earlier, and um, you've been talking about working with, with homeless veterans. And Can you talk about specific instances where you saw a leap from, from before the wars <coughs> to now just because of the, the numbers of people coming over and, and the work that's been done? Well, I can think of one case I, I was telling you about earlier as a, a, a young gentleman who uh, lost all of his friends in Iraq in one single explosion, and he himself, when he tried to help, was shot through the face and suffered a fairly horrific injury. And uh, I think for me, because he was having trouble with our healthcare system, he had, uh, he had some very uh, significant uh, uh, mental health issues related to the injury, mild traumatic uh, brain injury. Uh, PTSD, uh, and his family was having a tough time. Well, the first thing I noticed was that his mother was younger than I was, which was a shock to me. The second thing, I realized that we weren't set up to deal with a large number of young people coming in and in different culture. And the first thing the, the young gentleman complained to me about is that you guys have an electronic medical record. It's integrated. How come everybody asks me the same questions over and over again? Uh, what, you know, so we realized we had staff training that we had to do, and we've done it. And the other th uh, factor, which I, which I think is interesting, and, and maybe it's an age thing, is that he had no patience whatsoever with, uh, with our system. He said, I'm waiting here 10 minutes to get my x-ray. And I'm thinking, 10 minutes? Have you been like in the private sector ever? I waited 10 minutes to find parking over at UCLA. <laughs> the... the and then the, the, the generational change is the use of electronic devices, smartphones, and for us, us to get to communicate with veterans as, as well as we can. So we started up Facebook, uh, Twitter. We, uh, we have in our My Healthy Vet, which is our, uh, a way that veterans can communicate with our electronic health care record. We, we're now doing emails, and we are... Uh, developing as fast as we can better telehealth programs, or we have a very large telemental health program. Every one of our clinics, our 12 clinics, even in remote areas, and I consider anything out of West LA remote, like Bakersfield, those areas where it's almost impossible to recruit certain types of professionals. We can have somebody sitting on the West LA campus in front of a computer uh, talking to a patient uh, about their mental health issues in Bakersfield. And we're trying to get it where we can actually use iPads and iPhones, et cetera. I'm not plugging Apple or anything, because I have a droid myself. But the, the bottom line is that we want to be able to, to provide our mental health to veterans where they are and not have them have to drive anywhere. And we're also moving many of our medical specialties into these telehealth operations. We now have telediabetes. And we also 
decided, and this, this affects veterans of all ages, and one of the issues with the new veterans coming in and the older veterans would say, hey, what are all this stuff for these young guys? What about us? And guys, there's, there's not just guys, there's lots of women coming in too. And what we've done is we've now embarked on a mission of population medicine. So with our integrative healthcare record, we can look at everybody without, that it doesn't have controlled hypertension or doesn't have controlled diabetes, and we can target those patients with a variety of factors. Many of the issues are psychosocial in nature, and we can uh, deal with that through care coordination. We've hired, like I mentioned, 400 social workers. We have a lot of care coordinators. And getting back to the young gentleman, he had, a, he had one wish in life, and that was to become a, a police officer. And you saw, thought to your, I thought to myself, how is that ever going to happen with all this, this disability from his wounds and the mental health issues? And he is a very successful police officer. And he stuck with his therapy, doing perfectly well. So these people, uh, we, we urge veterans, take, please, you may not use the VA, but at least come in and get screened. Let us see you. And we will get you to the highest functional level as possible. And this is just one of thousands of veterans that we've helped come from a long way and make it to be a very productive and happy member of society. So the question was, have I, have I seen a tremendous leap in technology to be able to care for one person uh, during the, this period of war? And I actually have. I've had the privilege of being involved with two service members that have lost limbs. And uh, one of them received the unilateral hand transplant, dominant side. The other one received the uh, right and left upper, upper extremity transplants. And this is a uh, truly a leap of technology that it didn't exist. 15 years ago. So uh, if you think about what we're trying to do, and I'll just use them as an example uh, regarding rehabilitation of somebody that's lost limbs. There's three parallel <coughs> tracks into trying to help that person. One is tissue engineering. Uh, the other one is prosthetics. And another one is transplantation. And again, they're, they're moving on different levels. So maybe tissue engineering is not moving as quickly. Um, the uh, prosthetics are moving rather rapidly with the bionic limbs, and then transplantation research is moving as well. So these were people that needed help. Uh, prosthetics were not enough for them, and they received the transplants. I'm not saying that transplants is the final answer, but this is the beginning, and this is a way of helping these service members and to bring in technology to help these service members achieve something. The other one is these facial injuries. We're getting severe facial injuries. And if you think about the face, the face has certain areas that are not replicated elsewhere. One of the tenets of plastic surgery, I'm a plastic surgeon, one of my tenets of training was to reconstruct like tissues with similar tissues. But there are no like tissues for the area around your mouth. Um, there's no way of reconstructing that once it's gone. So transplantation of faces provides a hope, and that's something they're working on for the service members. Can you talk about why service members are a good group for that? Is there something that makes them better for those kinds of... So I actually never said that they were a, better, they were a good group for them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to understand that this is the forefront of a brand new technology, and because it's a forefront of a brand new technology, we are amazingly cognizant of not experimenting on the military. Mm -hmm. So in fact, there are very few have been, of all the transplants that have been done, have been military members, particularly for that reason. We need to, in some ways, particularly as 
to myself need to prove the concept in the civilians, then we can bring him to military. Not what happened in the past where it was the other way around. Mm -hmm. Our military members were, um, uh, were experimented on. Mm -hmm. However, that's the party line. I do think that the military <laughs> members are wonderful candidates because the dedication that they have, uh, the amount of burden that they can carry. I, I consider our service members worker horses. Uh, these are the people that know how to follow orders. So as a physician, if you can help me be your advocate and follow the recommendations I give, that's a big part of the whole game. So I, in fact, in many ways, um, I would, would love for them to be our, our, our patients. You know, I can't, I can't echo that enough. Uh, I forget the person who uh, had this quote, but I always remember it, and that was the only victor in war was medicine. The Mayo Brothers. Was the Mayo Brothers? Thank you. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're giving a doctoral dissertation, there's somebody that's going to ask you a question that you don't know. Um, in, uh, so in my particular experience, there was a... I was giving a talk in Washington, D.C., and there was a service member that was there that had just come back from theater, and he was having um, def a lot of problems uh, with his uh, family. Wasn't sure about how he could remember things. He couldn't get his, uh, couldn't remember where he parked his car, had a hard time interacting with people. And um, so we just talked about traumatic brain injury, and I gave him an image of what his brain looked like. And he started crying. And he came up to me and he said, I thought I was going crazy. But now, you've, now I see that I actually have something. And so it, changed the, it not only changed his attitude towards himself, but the whole family was changed. And his support system was changed. I always remind individuals that traumatic brain injury doesn't happen to one person or to one NFL player or to one soldier or to one Marine or one Navy. It happens to the whole family or the whole support unit. And so people have to recognize that. And that was a really a, uh, uh, a very emotional time for me because I felt like, you know, boy, this, this, is, this, is, this is the tip of the iceberg that if we could get this out, we could really make a difference. I, it, it, it sounds terrible, but some of the, the healthiest people I've ever seen and are the, uh, the uh, most dedicated and wanting to do, uh, will follow orders, as you will say, are military personnel. They make ideal subjects for things like mild traumatic brain injury. You know, they, they, they try not to lie, but military individuals, just like athletes, lie. And they don't lie on purpose. They lie because they want to go back. They don't lie because they're malingers. They want to go back. And some of them don't even know that they've had a head injury. They can't even remember it. But they are healthy. They're not somebody that is um, in a civilian community that has other kinds of problems. So th that particular scientific study is very, very clean. And that, and that does make a big difference for somebody like us. Um, the the post-traumatic stress disorder and the mild traumatic brain injury were always called the invisible wounds of this war. And you've heard that probably in the press. And I think when we were able to show them a picture that says not, this is not invisible anymore. This is not, this is an injury. 
and you have every right for the right types of treatment, the right type of diagnosis, and the privilege to be considered injured and wounded in serving our country. It meant a lot to these people. You mentioned the similarities between the football players and the guys coming back with TBI, and you talked about Boston and how similar that was as far as, as explosive injuries. Can you talk about the interplay between what you're doing and what the civilian populations are doing? I mean, what, what are you learning from, from both parts that's, that's working well together? Well, I can talk from the... Um, so we started in the 1980s talking to um, boxing associations. You know, it's kind of it's an interesting sport, boxing and ultimate fighting. You know, the, the goal of the sport is to produce a brain injury, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, there may be some people that would like to have injuries produced, but I don't know about in sports. But then we moved with, with the NFL, and the, um, in the NFL, we began to ask, uh, this was back when Paul Taglebu was commissioner, we began to ask, you know, what, how big is your problem in NFL? How many, how many mild traumatic brain injuries do you have? And they said, we don't have traumatic brain injury in the NFL. And I said, my, my goodness, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so I gave it, uh, so Paul Taglebu asked me to give a, a lecture to the owners and the owners of the NFL, and, and the owner said, that's yeah, very nice about concussions, but we don't have concussions in the NFL. And so then I spoke to the players' union, and the players said the same thing, we don't have concussions in the NFL. And the reasons for their, for their denial was, wasn't the fact that they were trying to get around certain things. The players, a lot of their incentive contracts have to do with what, how often they could play, and they didn't want to be removed. And the owners were worried about long-term liability. When the subject came up with the military, the military had a similar type of resistance, but it was for different reasons. It wasn't the fact that they were trying to deny that there was a, that there was a problem, but they didn't know how often it occurred. And, and um, so the, the big breakthrough that was with the NFL that has now changed the way the NFL works, uh, it took almost 15 years for that to happen, for the Department of Defense to move once they once they knew they had a problem. It only took about 18 months for them to, to, to move on this issue, which was a really, that's a really fast time to get to something through the Pentagon and out. But the, all the recommendations that the Blue Ribbon Symposium gave and that, and that we gave to the um, uh, Department of Defense was based on what we knew about civilian concussion, athletic concussion. And as my colleague described very, very well, I mean, a lot of these injuries are blast injuries. And uh, there are some of us, I'm not particularly one of them right now, because I, I just haven't seen any data that, to suggest otherwise. But there are some people that believe a blast mild traumatic brain injury is a completely different animal than an athletic injury. So the thing, one of the things that I worry about is that our recommendations are based on what we've learned in the civilian community. If they are not the right recommendations because it's the wrong injury, we could be, have a problem. But for now, I just think it's the, the biomechanics of how the injury is produced, not necessarily the neurobiology the same. And the VA has tremendous 
rehabilitation centers around the country for traumatic brain injury. And it's really a question of identifying that severe and moderate traumatic brain injuries easy to see and easy to identify. It's the repeat miles that we worry about. And we've, and we've screened about, I think in just the West LA screened about 13,000 or so recent returning veterans uh, from the past two wars uh, for traumatic brain injury. And a significant percentage have uh, traumatic brain injury or, or mild traumatic brain injury. And we, the VA, as, as you mentioned, set up polytrauma centers and we're a polytrauma center at the at the West LA VA, and to run a polytrauma center, uh, you you get to learn a lot of things, and you learn that. Uh, and I think where the civilian sector is learning more from the military and VA sector is that we have a huge emphasis on team care, and the reason is, you know, I went to UCLA Medical <coughs> School, but I first real when I graduated, I thought it was very smart until I started practicing medicine and realized that I, I don't know what a psychologist can do and I don't know what a nutritionist can do. I, you learn all that and you find that actually the captain of the team often better is not to be the doctor, it's to be the case manager, the person that knows the veteran's uh, uh, psychosocial situations. Many of our patients uh, have very, very poor uh, psychosocial support systems and we have to construct that and provide the team care. So you see our polydrama patients coming and they're coming to see their care manager who makes sure they get all the care they need. The doctor part of it is often the least important part. The psychologist providing the cognitive therapy, the physical therapist getting the best functional status for them, and then, and then taking advantage of uh, Operation MEND and some of these wonderful programs that UCLA applies. We, we, certainly, we certainly encourage that. But I think the big, big change for all of us is the is that we've taken a, mo a model which was actually just in mental health when I was training, which was a team approach to taking care of patients, and now we, we're using that for all of our patients, and in particular our polytrauma patients, because it's not just enough to have them see a physician. There really are multiple other specialists and experts that they can benefit from, and their most important person may well not be the traditional healthcare professional, but be their care coordinator that makes sure they can get to the appointments time. We, we already talked about uh, one of the things one of the polytrauma patients was telling me, and he was saying, you know, I was talking to him, and he was writing everything down. He said, if I don't write this down, doctor, I will not remember this appointment. And this person was, uh, and I don't want to get too specific in identifying, this person has completed his MBA at UCLA and is very successful in business right now. And this is someone who could not remember anything more than a few hours when he came back from Iraq. So a lot of great successes. Not everybody's 100% successful, but we certainly, like I said, aim for the best functional outcome that we can. And the difference here, talking about football versus military injuries, a football injury is a, is a hit, and a military injury could be just the wave blast going through and not necessarily hitting the blast that, or the, hitting an object. That's what the, the concern yeah, the, is. The, uh, um you know, people think that, that uh, shell shock syndromes or these concussions are unique to Iraq and Afghanistan. And they actually have a long history. Um, they're, um, it's well documented in World War I, for example, from shell shock syndrome. Korean War, we saw it all the time. Now we have, as uh, uh, Professor Zari was, was describing, you have individuals now that have a tremendous protective gear. You have a helmet now that is uh, much harder to penetrate than before. So the injuries are different. 
and the blasts are, uh, cause a difference. I have not, it's very rare for me to see a single individual or whenever I've traveled around the country to see an individual veteran that has received only a blast. They usually have a blast in a car, rollover, blast in a burn, or they've fallen, or they've been in a firefight. So it's, it's, it is a polytrauma phenomenon. And uh, the NFL, the, 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 the nice thing about the NFL is that you've got movies. I mean, you've got video of all the hits. So I can say, yep, that person's got dinged, and this is how the head was moving. When you're, when you're in theater and a, and a corpsman or a medic is trying to reproduce what happened, it becomes, well, I'm not sure exactly what happened. And a lot of people may not have known what happened. So you have to rely on um, the clinician that comes back, either the medic or the corpsman or the forward operating-based physician, to actually diagnose it. I mean, it has to be done through clinical diagnosis. And that's, that's what becomes a really big challenge, a really big challenge. But it is, uh, what we're learning more about um, in the NFL or in NCAA uh, contact sports is that A, is that uh, concussion is different between men and women, and it's different between children and adults. And the definition of a child is somebody that under the age of 25, the human brain doesn't get mature until after 25 years of age. And that the, uh, we're really concerned about what we call subconcussive blows. So those are blows to the head that don't actually cause a tremendous amount of problem, but they're just repetitive. And we don't know if those things add up yet. And in the NFL, they're, they're looking at it from the standpoint of a, of a hit count, the same way you would have a, a pitch count for kids that are throwing a baseball to, you're only allowed to throw so many times to save your elbow. And they're thinking about the same thing in terms of blows. And so what we're, we're trying to decide is what kind of biomarker could we place on military personnel in theater or in training that would say that that has been exposed to so many Gs? And how many times would we allow that to happen over the course of time? And the risk is dementia or suicidal ideation. Yeah, and, and, is, and is the risk of dementia greater? Um, there's a... Uh, several papers that have been published looking at um, boxing and NFL players. And, you know, people say, well, he's had 25 concussions. Well, if he has 25 reported concussions, that probably means he has 75 because they don't tell you when they had the other ones. <laughs> and we know that it's not the number. It's the time between the concussions. Mm -hmm. So about 80 to 90% of the individuals that have a concussion will, will clear. And what I mean by clear is the central nervous system will uh, repair itself spontaneously over the course of 10 to 14 days. But during that time, it's very, very, very vulnerable to all kinds of different exposures. That's why you need to protect the individual. That's why players are taken out field of play. There is this minority, and I... Uh, I don't know why. Some of us think it's genetic. Some of us think it's uh, biomechanical. There's a minority of individuals where they have post-concussive symptoms, which, uh, which f go far beyond two weeks to months to even a year. And uh, if I could come up with a, a reason for that, some of us think it's genetic. Uh, some of us think it's... Um, 
it may be the, just the way that the skull is is uh, is oriented in certain people. Not everybody's the same. It's uh, the the human brain is like a a fingerprint. If I take all of your MRIs, they're all like fingerprints. It's it's they're much different from each individual. And if we knew that, that would help a lot. Dr. Azari, could you talk a little bit about the interplay between military? Sure. Um, it, it, it's interesting, and I think part of the best parts of my job are to is to learn. I, I'm, I'm a teacher, but I'm also learning all the time. And and two real interesting examples I can use are for burn patients. So as we see with these war wounded, uh, there are severe burns. The body armor does a great job of protecting, yet it's not enough. So some of them come back with severe burns that are third degree, which means full thickness. Uh, encompassing a, a large portion of the body. And to reconstruct that, you have to take away the burns and put skin grafts on there. You have to take parts of your own skin and put it. Some patients don't have enough skin. So we have learned to grow skin. You take parts of healthy skin, you grow it, and then within a you know, week or two weeks or whatever, you can put that back. And that prevents having to take your own skin and prevents you from having donor site morbidity. So they're using that extensively in the medical centers and in the, in the, uh, for the Army. And so we're learning from that in the civilians for our burn units. The corollary to that was, uh, I'm a plastic surgeon as well, I don't do cosmetic surgery anymore, but there's a product that you can take your own skin and you can use for and grow it and use it and make dermal fillers to help with wrinkles and, and, and what have you. And we're noticing that that helps with, if you put that underneath scar that already exists, that helps with range of motion. It ameliorates the amount of scar it has. So that prevents you having to do surgery. And through the efforts of what we have here in Operation Men and the research efforts, we're going to be implementing that. Um, so that to prevent these guys that have had their surgeries but have really severe restrictive scarring, maybe this thing that was working for wrinkles will really help them with range of motion of their joints. So this interplay is really interesting, and it just needs an open mind. Can you talk about, how are we doing on time? Okay. Can you talk, or do, do we need to open it up for questions, or we have 10 minutes? Before? Okay. <laughs> Can you talk about what you've learned from the corpsmen and the medics? What kinds of things are they bringing back from the field and telling you? Is there anything that's influenced medicine that way? Well, I think... <clears throat> Uh, that's a that's a good question, and and I think that we were talking earlier about the corpsmen and what you know is there a way we can get them to become PAs and and uh, licensed professionals and and you know we we have taken a few at our medical center and uh, quite a few uh, returning veterans again the VA goes out of its way to hire veterans and we're up in I think close to thirty percent of our workforce veterans, but uh, and some of them are entering nursing schools and actually trying to get into uh, medical school some of them. But what we've learned from them is, uh, you know, what people learn in the field is, is, is as was already spoken about, is that that the amazing recovery rate for pa for patient people who are severely injured in battlefield, and that means that uh, they have to cope with more horrific injuries. And again, we mentioned we already mentioned the fact that uh, we were shocked to find multi-drug resistant pathogens causing these infections. And uh, we were, we learned that from, I learned that from our own people that were deployed in Iraq uh, early on, that there were these infections, which somehow didn't make it to the medical literature till later, 
but we were right on it. But by, you know, they were just saying, well, you know, we're in Germany in the, in the hospital base, and we're seeing people with these kinds of infections with Aeromonas and bacteria that we, we weren't associating with wound injuries. And we uh, took that information and we used it to, to screen patients for these pathogens. And we did find, find, uh, find some. Then, on, then, this shows you how everything works very quickly. One of the, one of the <laughs> folks who's, uh, who's a retired uh, physician who does a tremendous amount of research in infectious diseases got a large grant from DOD. Uh, and it was studying how to rapidly identify these organisms in the battlefield. So here's a case where we learned something about infections from the people who are deployed from the VA coming back, telling us about this. And then we are already doing research to try to rapidly identify these pathogens and treat these pathogens. So it's a very interesting story. And, and just the way that medicine is moving at light speed, it's almost breathtaking, trying to keep up. I'm learning things just listening to these two, uh, to keep up with what's going on. But that's how we, we, we have learned a lot, because a lot of our folks did get deployed in, in, in these theaters of war. Mm -hmm. What I've learned the most has nothing to do with medicine. It has to do with the human spirit. And it has to do with these men and women that have given everything for us to stay here. And we're, we're sitting in a comfortable room, as they say, you know, America's not at war, America's shopping. Um, the, it's the United States military that's at war. So they're bearing the brunt of the weight of our freedom. And, and I've learned about their spirit in that they come back where their body devastated, their mind devastated, and their life is devastated. And I have never yet seen one of them complain. And I've learned something from them. When I said, <coughs> you know, this was, your leg was taken away from you. I'm, I'm corrected all the time. And, and the response is always, you know, nothing was taken away from me. I chose to give that. I chose to serve and I chose to give that. And that to me has taught me much more about medicine and the human spirit. And I, I've learned not to judge based on the injury, meaning that this devastating injury, I don't know what that person's uh, capabilities are. And I've found that their capabilities are enormous, despite having had severe wounds. Yeah, the, um, I sit on the Defense Health Board, and uh, which advises the uh, Secretary of Defense on Health issues and it's uh, it's interesting you have you have people like myself who have these great ideas about what uh, should what a medic or corpsman should take into the field and it wasn't until um, I asked a very simple question how much gear does a corpsman or a medic carry right now and it was preposterous I mean it's unbelievable and so and and these individuals can do unbelievable things in the field but you just can't load any more things up with them you know you have to figure out a new way to you have to become smarter not just give them more things to carry what they bring back in terms of what they've learned and what they've seen really has affected in in our fields i think emergency medicine and how we would change ems responses and how do you make decisions on who is going to be transported and who isn't? How they're going to be transported? Resuscitation fluids, the use of tourniquets. Some of these things are, are really spreading around. And the, the, the example of the Boston bombing is a, is a perfect example. 
of em emergency response teams and what they've learned from people from uh, from theater. Yeah, I, I'll even put it this way: we're we're learning from the meta from the uh, military and that the way to prepare to prepare for a catastrophe, a disaster. You know, we live in L.A. Uh, it's imminent that we're going to have a, a major earthquake. It can be that we have a major natural catastrophe. And we are learning how to deploy, how to, uh, I'll tell you, even at UCLA, we've learned from them of who goes where and who does what, based on what we have learned from the, uh, the service members. Probably the audience doesn't know that, uh, that UCLA, the VA, and the, the whole county practice multiple times a year dealing with a variety of disasters. Uh, the, the one everybody's familiar with is the earthquake, but we do other kinds of uh, disaster preparedness as well. So you can be very proud LA has an integrated emergency response that goes all the way to Riverside, actually. And uh, we even in the VA, and I'm sure UCLA does too, we have an actual command center we go to. Uh, looks like the CNN newsroom. I've never been to CNN newsroom, but I see it when I watch CNN. Uh, <laughs> But, but TVs everywhere and so forth, and we're able to manage these, uh, these you know, practice disasters. And unfortunately, we've all had some experience managing some real ones, and, uh, but that gives us more experience. And I think that that's a very big plus for Los Angeles. Hi, my name's Nicole Durden. Um, we've talked a lot about the patients that are returning from the wars, and I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about um, the military medical personnel. Um, so those folks between the medics, the corpsmen, the medevac pilots, the physicians, the nurses, the surgeons, they're um, in theater seeing devastating traumas wheel through the door, um, often, you know, months for months that they're seeing these patients come in. Um, and these are the people that are there saving the lives. But what about when those folks come back? You know, they're also part of the veteran population um, and have been seeing these traumatic injuries you know, much more than perhaps the regular soldier out on the battlefield. So what are your thoughts in terms of how we can support the medical personnel when they return as well? That's, we'll a, really, that's a great question. Actually, uh, actually it, it, it is a significant problem that's not talked about enough. Uh, we, and I can just speak from our experience at RVA, that we've had uh, particularly nurses that have been deployed and coming back, and they have suffered uh, those kind of, not so much traumatic injuries, but the mental health issues that that you would expect. And we have a, uh, I think it's pretty good. It's it's pretty good uh, employee assistance. You have it at in the universities too, and it's a it's something that we offer all employees uh, right up front. Many of these uh, people who are deployed are also our patients and actually use the VA and, and avail themselves of those services. But the what I tell everybody is please get the employee assistance. We have a full-time psychologist, and that's what uh, she does, is talks, talks to folks like this, figures out what the best course of therapy would be. We obviously, as managers, are very sympathetic uh, to these problems, and we have a very well-defined uh, system for, for taking it on. And, but I think it's a great question, because when I talk to other folks in VA and around, I said, do you have these kind of problems? They always say, oh, no, not at all. I don't think it can't be just procured to West Los Angeles, but I, I, I think it's probably it's a big problem, and I think it's something that we have to be aware of. I think beyond just those who are deployed, it's, you know, you, you're in Iraq, and then you go back to Bamsi, and you're seeing the same injuries there, and then you go to Walter Reed, and you see the same, you never really get away from it as a, as a medical person. Question over here on your left. Hello, my name is Anthony Quesada. 
I'm on, with Ambit, second vice commander, also public relations officer, post 33 in the South Bay area. Uh, my question is, it brought my attention when you were talking about the head concussions. I know I had four of them that I know, that I'm aware of. How does one veteran seek help in that? And, and what is the recovery, if there is any recovery from brain trauma, um, concussions? Well, the good news is that if Mother Nature didn't provide you with a mechanism to recover from mild traumatic brain injury, we would have been somebody's breakfast several hundred thousand years ago. So we evolved mechanisms. So there is recovery, spontaneous recovery. Is there a treatment today that I can say, okay, I've got a severe head injured patient or I've got somebody with several concussions. Is there a, um, uh, a uh, either a treatment paradigm or a pill that I can give that will cure this disease? And I underline the word disease. It is not an event that you recover from, it's an event that you live with and that you always live with as you go through. And there is none right now. Uh, there, there are, uh, rehabilitation is uh, what we use the, the best that does, that does affect the brain. Behavior does change the brain. It changes connections in the brain. Um, we can do things that make things worse alcohol abuse, drug abuse, uh, becoming isolated and not being integrated into the integrated with your support facility or your family. That can make it worse. We don't know the risk right now in terms of the long-term consequences of this process in terms of what is your chances of having problems when you are turn 70 or 80 years of age. We just don't know right now. Uh, we'd like to be able to, to check that, but we just don't know. Okay, Michael Kwan is my name. Uh, I'm the area director for the Military Officers Association of America, and we're a, basically a legislative advocacy group. So uh, I guess one of the questions I have would be, uh, the wars we've had lately are totally different. When I went through, I was trained how one battalion faces another battalion. We're not doing that anymore. We're going street by street. We're clearing out houses. And when you open the door of a house, you don't know if that guy's waiting for you with his, you know, his Kalishnikov. And I think that's really having a huge effect on the mental health of the people coming back. And I hear a lot, but I, I don't hear enough about what's going on on the mental health side. And the other issue I have would be with Dr. Norman. Uh, since I'm a part of a legislative advocacy group, what is the, well, I'm a little frustrated by the, by the congressional support sometimes because I, I went through our congressman and I find out that it's very difficult to get some of the things done for political reasons in the VA in Brentwood because you have a conflict between the citizens of Brentwood who vote for the representative as well as the VA who sits there as a significant portion of that congressman's district. And so I, I'm just curious how you're mitigating that. And the other one would be, uh, I guess this really belonged in the former session. There is a lot of state legislation I know of, and I wish the uh, reporters would report on these. Uh, there's a lot of legislation that isn't really so much to, uh, oh, as, as one speaker said, to, uh, 
I don't know, tip the balance in favor of the veteran. I think there should be legislation, there is legislation to make the playing field a little more equal. And I wish, well, you're, you're, you're with CNN. Maybe we could address it that way too because I'm with you, I, I just feel there isn't <laughs> enough to say what's going on. And I don't even think there's even enough saying what, how the VA has changed in the last four years or under the current administration. So I guess I have about three different questions. Yeah, Sorry. I can answer part of that. Okay, so the first question was, uh, what, are the, what are the effects essentially of no front lines? You, know, you have no downtime. You're always worried that something's going to happen. And they, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'll tell you it does have a big effect on stress. And uh, we have uh, some very interesting uh, work being done and besides behavioral cognitive therapy for people with PTSD. We have these uh, virtual Iraq, and I can't think of the fellow that's invented a program where you are desensitized from watching images. I've actually looked at it. Actually, it's very, very interesting. Uh, and uh, there's a whole bunch of research going on in that, and, and we do offer considerable therapies. And my experience has been, and, and uh, again, this is a change. I thought PTSD was basically not, when I started, not curable, something you live with forever. And actually, we made tremendous progress in the last several years in, 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 in dealing with PTSD, where our, our patients are, are quite functional and do quite well, particularly after that first year adjustment disorder. And I was saying earlier that that one thing I really, really find so tragic is veterans coming back and then not seeking help, getting into car accidents, having hunting accidents, and so forth. These are all things that we could really help with. And I'm hoping with legislation that the military will require people to go to the VA. Your second issue, the politics, are absolutely mind-boggling to me. Uh, there are hundreds of factions with all, you know, we, we, have a, we have a VA that unfortunately is on $4 billion <laughs> of real estate. $4 billion is very attractive to a lot of people. And we have homeowners who, who you know, fight to the, to the death to keep us from bringing our homeless programs onto it. We have other homeowners who are very supportive and think it's a great idea. We have politicians who ignore us uh, forever and then suddenly it becomes interesting and they suddenly discover us. Like, <coughs> We've been here since 1878, and all of a sudden, it, it's, we're discovered as it's something interesting politically. Now, if you think about it, all of you in the audience, what it's like to have Congress as your board of directors, you can understand what my job is like. <laughs> so that's as much as I can say without getting some comments from my boss. As a veteran, I never feel like the media cover these issues enough, but I am going to defend USA Today. We've got a reporter who does report just on veterans' issues, as well as someone who covers the military and someone else who covers national security. And I have Mike Hayden at MOA on quick dial, so he's your D.C. representative. So I, we, we are covering it. It's just it's hard to hit everything because so much is going on all the time. My name is Mary Fenstermacher. I work with an organization called New Directions. And uh, I have two questions. The first one is, during the Vietnam era, which I'm very familiar with, um, there were things like environmental factors, like Agent Orange and Napalm, that disabled people to, to a degree. And uh, it took a long time for a lot of those disabilities to get recognized. What I'm hearing about now is burn pits. And I'm wondering where things are in terms of recognizing that as, as um, a factor that is causing disability. My second question is, we haven't heard a thing about military sexual trauma, and uh, that is a big, huge issue with this war. And, you know, I mean, we all know that there are a lot more women, thank you. <laughs> there are, I hope it wasn't all women that clapped. Um, 
there are a lot more women serving now and that this this level of trauma is equal to PTSD and, you know, maybe even connected to PTSD. So I would just appreciate it if you would speak to those two things. I actually broke the, the, the burn pit stories when I worked at Army Times several years ago. Um, someone in the military contacted me with some, some letters saying this is, this is bad. They basically include, I mean, you can't burn stuff in your backyard in L.A., right? It's a health, it's a health uh, violation. Um, one of the byproducts of the burn pit, it was the, the big burn pit was at Balad. They were burning 240 tons of trash in an open pit a mile from the troops. Um, one of the byproducts of a burn pit or any kind of burn is dioxin, which is what the problem was in Agent Orange. Um, and the VA has actually issued, I think it was a 14-page letter, training letter about environmental toxins. Military's basically been saying there are no known health effects for burn pits um, in young, healthy populations. So they're, they're still working on that. They did shut down the burn pits in Iraq. They still, I think, have a couple going in Afghanistan, but I'm not sure. Um, there was a... Um, lawsuit against one of the contractors for, for using burn pits, and that, that got killed, basically. So it's still sort of up in the air. There are some things moving through. There's been talks of um, registries so that anyone who was exposed to those toxins would be, or potential toxins, would be on this list. So they're, they're working on it. It's just not there yet. There's a lot of research going on in that area. Yeah, as far as the military sexual trauma, and I think we all realize that's a, that's a national disgrace and something that... Uh, that I personally was shocked at the percentage of women. It can be as high as 50% of women 52. are saying, hmm? 52%. 52%, okay, I stand corrected. 52% of women uh, have experienced military sexual trauma. So it's a national disgrace. What the VA is doing about it, I mentioned uh, our concentration on women veterans. The uh, clinics that we've set up are, are comprehensive. I've hired dozens of new uh, mental health uh, folks, at, at, and we actually partner with New Directions. It's one of our great partners. Uh, and they have actually a f uh, facility that I've visited that, that deals with female veterans, and it's very nice. The, uh, the, we put in a tremendous amount of resources, but again, I think that as a society, you know, you know, it's, you know we, can, we can treat these folks, but why can't we prevent this from happening? This is something that's been well known. Actually, the biggest problem we have, you know, for, for, for women in, in VA is that well, they complain to me. And often I go to the meetings and I'm the only man there. And they say, well, why is this man here? Well, I'm in charge. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, the, uh, but, but the biggest problem I have, believe it or not, the females complain with, and I have, I have one, our expert sitting in the audience, is they have to sit in a, in a waiting room with other male veterans who actually harass them. And you just think, my goodness. Can we, get, can we get over that? So we've constructed, in all our clinics, or not all of them, but almost all of them, are constructed so that women veterans can sit in a, in a women area and not, there's no men allowed, except for the very few providers that are still, the male that, are, that, that we have there, almost all are female now. One of the things about being in the military is, as a woman, you're trying so hard to be just one of the guys, and anything you say that makes you stick out, so it's hard to get people to report it, and it's hard to get people to talk about it, so... Hi, my name is Laura Sharp, and I'm the founder of Artists for Trauma. I'm a polytrauma survivor myself, and I'm actually here to share with everyone how um, much 
possibilities there are in quality recovery. As a UCLA success story myself, I am delighted to you know, present this to, to the public at large. Also in reaching out to the military, and you know, we've been speaking about the military and the medical field, and behind the military and the medical field are human beings. And our society is comprised of human beings, which are, we are whole body, mind, and spirit individuals, which I embrace the way the VA is approaching this new integrative approach into their system and the whole body, mind, and spirit. And for me, I feel that the arts is a very powerful healing tool in helping to approach the recovery um, from the mental and emotional aspect. So um, I would just like to ask you how you feel arts plays in, in this as a healing tool. Well, I can answer that a little bit. Is the, uh, what we have found uh, for veterans, and this is not a veteran problem per se, it's a United States problem, is the, is the absolute obsessive dependence on medication for everything. And what our veterans are telling us is, you know, could you, you know, giving us a bag of narcotics is not really what we're here for. We're here to, to get well. And so we've, we've embarked on wellness. And so for one of the things, believe it or not, that one of my chief of psychiatry is very into dance therapy, which is an art, I'll give it that. And, he, um, and he's developed a nice program. We've developed a very big program in Tai Chi, and we found for Tai Chi for veterans of all ages and non-veterans is a phenomenal way to maintain function as you age. Whether you're a recently returning veteran or you're anybody, you can, you can benefit from these type of exercise programs. And I, I would jokingly say to you know, people, I was told by my attending, if you want to live a good, healthy life, buy a big dog. And I said, what? Well, because it forces you to walk. So we get people walking and, uh, and not, taking, not taking pain medication when they can actually just do a little bit of exercise. I have met an artist, I, I don't know if you are, you are she, that actually works with veterans directly and reconstructs their, the images, the, the traumatic images or what they remembered. She actually makes a very uh, beautiful photograph, video of, of that image. <coughs> and that is very therapeutic for the veterans. So I'm a big fan of the arts and I think it's very therapeutic, particularly dance therapy and if you count Tai Chi's art form, uh, that, that as well. 